Good, okay, uh, I'll begin then. Yeah, yeah good, so uh, my name's Jim. I'm a member of the Nanaimo Kettlebell Club. I'm also a social worker and a counselor. I work at one of the local treatment centers. And I'm a man in recovery, long-term recovery, which I'm very excited about being in. And I've prepared this presentation for you. Nice, thank you. Yeah. So uh, addiction in the family. Uh, I understand we're gonna do about 30 minutes. So I'm gonna to try to move through it quickly. I have a lot of material, but I'm also very interested in speaking to your areas of interest. So we can stop and questions and that'll all be very valuable. So uh, addiction and the family, Jim Edwards and uh, concepts. I'm gonna look at the problem, which is a biopsychosocial spiritual malady. Um, talk a little bit about the different you know uh, uh, definitions of addiction but for a long time we thought uh, you know addiction was just a moral problem people weren't strong enough didn't have the, the the willpower and then we moved more medical like it's a medical model and most treatment is around from that perspective medical model but currently more currently we understand that it's a very complex disease and has you know, biological, psychological, social, and even spiritual aspects to it. That we're gonna talk about that a bit. Look at the family. I wanna look at the roots of the socialization, the critical impacts, we call them, which are little things that happen in our childhood. And I might use my own story as, as examples. I do often when I speak, but although I was brought up in a very you know, sort of middle class, professional oriented. My father was a good man, uh, a biologist uh, with fisheries and oceans and uh, and uh, but some of his stressful times and the stressful times in our family had a critical impact on me growing up and not that it was like big T trauma as some people would think although I have experienced some of that but uh, critical impacts are perceptions children's perceptions and the way they make meaning out of it when they're four, six, and eight years of age, which we see the roots of addiction in those moments. Attachment, I'm gonna talk a little bit about attachment uh, in the uh, family of origin, the primary context, which is father, mother, and child. Uh, trauma, what trauma is, and disconnection, because these are big pieces of about addiction. Uh, recovery, I'm going to talk a little bit about re recovery, uh, solution, and spirituality in the context of this. So, uh, you know, I lay out several definitions. The World Health Organization, a cluster of psychological, behavioral, cognitive phenomena in which the use of a substance or process or class of substances takes on a much higher priority than things like eating. So I believe most of us have been impacted by addiction in our families or in our lineage, uh, certainly in our culture. In North America, it's a, it's a big social problem. Uh, one definition, uh, the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine, CSAM, our medical professionals, doctors are certified CSAM specialists. A primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. 
And so I throw these definitions out, which are kind of complex and, uh, and medical, just to give you the, the context of a very serious disease, which I don't think we understand sometimes when we, we see people afflicted with it, uh, with characteristics of biopsychosocial and spiritual manifestations. So that's uh, the, the medical profession works from this perspective. Uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association recently said addiction is a complex process where problematic patterns of substance use or behaviors, and in the business we call that processes, can interfere with a person's life, a condition that leads to compulsive engagement with stimuli despite the negative consequences. Uh, and Gabor Mate, one of my favorite uh, old doctors, uh, says, uh, very simply stated, the process and substance use disorder is present when seeking pleasure and relief with craving in the absence, related negative consequences and continued use despite the negative consequences. So, yeah, I mean, in, in my case, when I was young, I started using psychoactive substance. Uh, my first substance was alcohol, for example, which is a very powerful psychoactive substance. And uh, found relief right away as a 13-year-old thought, hey, this is way easier to negotiate women and sexual orientation and fitting in with the boys and, and uh, junior high school. Like, alcohol really helps. And, uh, and it did help. Because, see, alcohol is the solution or a psychoactive substance or a compulsive behavior is the solution to help us manage. So I work from a satire perspective. Satire is a type of family systems uh, theory and therapy. Virginia Satire said, the problem is not the problem. Coping with the problem is the problem. And so my substance use was a solution for me to my mental health and adolescence and, and the struggles of growing up in that, in that arena. Uh, Satir sees family systems and therapists. Many of us see, identify survival coping rules and survival stances in thousands of individuals and families. And I want to link, I don't know how well I do it in the presentation, but I want to link those survival systems in the family and individuals to the problem, which I think I could do in a minute. It's across cultural lines. We see this in Czechoslovakia. We see it in Malaysia. We see it in uh, Singapore, in Hong Kong. Uh, we see it all over the world. Uh, I have uh, colleagues in Israel, and we see this across uh, cultural barriers. These responses increase stress and adversity. The way a family copes, a family system, which you'll see in a minute, doesn't help. A family's about seeking equilibrium and balance, and to that end, there are pieces of survival that don't work in, in, with our young people, our children, our families. Critical impacts lead to attachment disorder, attachment disorder and trauma uh, perpetuated over generations. Uh, something very common today is our increased awareness and understanding of the residential schools and the impacts in Turtle Island, you know, we call it. Um, 
residential schools are a severe example of, you know, now intergenerational trauma being passed from one family to another. Uh, pain and suffering and immense social costs. Pain and suffering is underlying addiction. Addiction, substance use, process use is a response to pain and suffering. Um, family rules. I love these. There's a million family rules. One of my family rules was I must always be loyal. I must never question authority. And so I made rules out of that, and one of the rules I made from that was I can never trust authority. <laughs> That's the way I interpreted that rule. But some of the, the satire system stuff is it's not okay to see what's going on. And for example, it wasn't okay for me to see that my mother suffered from depression when I was a child. I look back and I go, oh, she, she was depressed. We never talked about it. Nobody talked about it. Uh, my father had some PTSD from the Second World War. I'm sure he did. Now, retrospectively, looking back, I see clearly he had some horrific experiences and a couple of tours uh, in the uh, RCAF. And uh, yeah, that's where his anger came from. That's why he stopped drinking at some point in time to manage it and sort of went dry. And so then all of a sudden he's got these problems with anger. And uh, it's not okay to feel. It wasn't okay to have feelings. And I remember my father saying, we don't want to see these tears. Take your tears to your bedroom. Nobody wants to see that. Clean up your face. You need to look good. You don't need to. And I think in each of these, in families, there's a purpose. They didn't want me to be... Uh, what I call a heat score. You know, you, you don't want to look like a girl. You don't want to be a baby. You don't want to be attracting that kind of attention. You need to be strong, you know, stuff those feelings. And so we didn't talk about them. We stuffed them. It's not okay to express yourself, express my sadness, express my confusion, express my fear. Yeah, there's nothing under the bed. There's nothing under the bed. There's nothing to fear. It's okay. We're not, there's nothing to be scared of. It's okay. It's not okay to ask for what you want. It's not okay to take risks. So these are core or fundamental family rules, which Satir and many of us have identified in family systems all over the world. Another way families cope with the stress, and I, I want to go back to the rules just for a second, but you know, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. That keeps equilibrium. That keeps a sense of safety and stasis in the family, which families do automatically. But it doesn't help the individuals. It doesn't help us really work out. They're survival rules, but they don't lower the stress. Same with these coping stances. Uh, I'm figuring how I'm wired. I want to stand up. But my father was a blamer. He would point, finger, and he would blame... The federal government, for the way he felt, he'd blame the Roman Catholic Church with a judgmental sort of accusatory, sometimes he'd blame my mother, sometimes he'd blame me. He was a blamer. My mother was a placator. She'd put herself in a subservient position. She'd cover her heart because it hurts to do that, and she'd plead with Harold to make it all right. Jimmy, sit down. It's all right. Don't bother your father. Let your father relax. And she'd people please or caretake, placate. Uh, I got irrelevant. 
irrelevant as a coping stance if this is my problem. And my problem was I was confused, I was trying to fit in, I had some fear issues, and lots of, I was a sensitive young boy at 12 or 13 or 11. And so if that was my problem, I found alcohol. It's called an irrelevant coping stance because it's not relevant. Some people slept in. My mother had issues, I think, uh, after I was born in an early five. So she slept. That was her answer. Depression was her response to it's an irrelevant coping stance. Um, some people used uh, bravado and sex and relationships and chaos to deal with their young adolescence. This was a way to cope, called an irrelevant coping stance. And I meet many people that are very super reasonable. They stay in their head, they're intellectual. This is not a problem, we can figure this out. We'll stay out of our heart so we don't feel any pain. And I can see that people are relating to this. This is my vibe I'm getting, you guys are, this is making sense. So these roots of dysfunction in the family leave us to a place where I'm gonna say that we're feeling kind of alienated and separated. So in, in sociology or social work or counseling, we use funny little diagrams. So my world is myself, other, and my context. That's my whole world. These coping stances, and addiction is a relational illness. Addiction is about how I relate to self, other, and my context or the world. So when I'm being super reasonable, like people are in our families, coping with the stress and adversity, because stress and adversity in a system is everywhere. Like all families have stress and adversity. So being super reasonable, I discount myself and I discount you because we can just deal with the context. We can just figure this out contextually. It's not personal. We don't have to worry about our feelings. So you can see how that doesn't help with the, with the, real, with the real problem. Uh, yeah, intellectual, perceptual, Mr. Spock sort of attitude. Irrelevant is a very uh, challenging survival stance when we work with people and families because irrelevant discounts the self, it discounts the other person, discounts the context. Like, we don't even need to talk about this. We can just talk about this other thing. And we see this irrelevant stance when we see people always communicating about the weather and everything's superficial and we just keep it light. And families tend to become insular or insulated then in these irrelevant stances and nobody knows what's going on behind the closed doors, actually. So irrelevant stances is uh, lacks trust and safety, of course. It's maybe inappropriate use of humor, sex, work, sleep, pornography. Uh, I work with families and people work way too much. They spend way too much time at work as a way of coping with stress in their life, for example. And just to look at placating, totally discounts the self as I put all my energy into taking care of the other person so that I can be all right. And blaming, one of my favorites, discounts the other while I'm trying to take care of myself in the context. So. These coping stances are dysfunctional because they don't lower the stress. They don't improve the condition, the operating environment in the family or individuals. Any thoughts on these pieces of the puzzle? Are they often paired together? Totally. Yeah, because I'm kind of seeing like... 
Totally. Well, you know, I want to get up and, and do the thing because I'm so... Uh, my father would do this and my mother would do this because that's how, uh, you know, as a young boy, you know, I had, to, I had to placate because he was big and he was angry. And then when I got bigger, I started blaming my brother and I learned how to do it. Uh, and they're also kind of brilliant. Like, they do minimize our risk exposure in a way. When somebody's big and they got the power thing going on, it's, it makes sense to be safe and low profile. Uh, but it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. So, yeah. And, you know, we also use many of them. Yeah, in certain circumstances, we can shift back and forth. Uh, this may be difficult to see, but this is what happens when I show this to 80 or 100 people in the addiction treatment, in treatment for their substance use disorder, I show them this iceberg, and on the surface you see uh, compulsive overeating, anorexia, bulimia, maybe alcohol, substance use, compulsive sex, uh, addictive relationships, compulsive work, compulsive gambling, spending or debting on the surface. But what's underneath this, and it's so curious, it's just so interesting to me that I can show 80 people this and they'll all put up their hands saying they relate to this. Inside is a self-loathing or a very negative relationship with self. Around that, a lot of fear. Uh, and this is stuff that's, uh, you know, psycho, inside, intra-psychic system stuff. Uh, and so the illusion of control. Uh, I would use grandiosity. Even when I'm doing this now, I'm sensitive because although I feel confident expressing myself, I can go very arrogant and grandiose, which is just balancing my sense of low self-esteem. That's what's... So I, I'm sensitive to this. Lying to self, the delusion and the denial. Uh, lying to others, the deceit is pronounced in, in this, uh, these, uh, this malady. And personality extremes. People I work with, myself included, like uh, I'm in recovery, as I've said. I've been in treatment myself <coughs> four times so far. Knock on wood. Personality traits in the extreme. Envy, self-pity, judgment, resentment, rigidity, tunnel vision. Now, these are things that we find everywhere in the population. But with people afflicted with this illness, they're pronounced aspects to their, their personality. And it makes sense then that a medication, a substance, or a process would alleviate a lot of pain. Because these surface behaviors work. They actually hijack the feel-good systems in the brain and make neural pathways that release very important feel-good drugs within our brain, uh, which is why it's dangerous for me to order pizza, because one is too many and a thousand is never enough. This is another iceberg metaphor. We use a lot of iceberg metaphors. 
But people struggling with addiction are in their survival story on the surface. There's a lot of drama. It's a lot of chaos. It may be a lot of conflict. There's a lot going on. Underneath, they're using survival coping stances. Well, they're blaming, and which they learned in their family. And they're blaming self. They're placating to be accepted. They're using substance. Feelings, pain, suffering, overwhelm, sad, lonely, fear, despair. Feelings, emotional energy is designed to move us. It's very powerful energy. And when we don't express our feelings, it stays inside of us and is often expressed below our conscious level in these behaviors. Feelings are very powerful energy, and we're not feelings batteries. We're not designed to stuff our feelings. We are emoting whenever we're conscious and awake. We're having feelings. And so to not express that is to suppress that, and it does come out. And sometimes it comes out in, in uh, somatizes. It turns into cancer or renal failure or uh, allergies or compromised immune system. So it's complex inside, and I guess I'm painting a picture of a complex illness. But the substance use is not the problem. It's coping with substance or process that becomes the problem. Uh, you know, when someone in the family has a substance problem, everyone's impacted. I talk about the disease going off in the living room. Boom, the disease goes off. Somebody gets it. And I deal with family members, and everybody's sick. Everybody has adapted a dysfunctional coping stance to the adversity that the disease brings to the family. The problem develops. The family may not understand what's happening. The person with the problem may not see their use as a problem or may be completely open and, or not be completely open, may be dishonest. They may also be scapegoated. Uh, as the problem becomes apparent, family members may struggle to balance their desire to help and protect the person with the need to let the person take responsibility for his or her behavior. We start to move a bit into the solution, I hope, here. Um, when faced with the situation, everybody is impacted with guilt, shame, grief, depression, loss of control, of course, anxiety, and hopelessness emerges as the f disease progresses. You know, substance use disorder is a progressive disease that turns into addiction in some people. The biological is the genetic predisposition, which somebody has to have. The social context where stress relief is needed and the substance is available, and the psychological sensitivities and personality traits have to all come together. And as I've read, the current stats would indicate 20% of the population in Canada will identify with substance use disorder uh, these days. So the great calamity is, not the is the loss of love and connection from others. You've disconnected from yourself. It's a relational disease. With that iceberg, with those sensitivities, with the family rules and the context, we start to lose touch with our own spirit and our own yearnings. 
And if you think of people you know that have struggled with this disease, or maybe struggling, maybe suspicious, it's a loss of connection with self first, then others, and then the community. Family members may also begin to neglect themselves emotionally, physically, and socially. Uh, there's always trauma. I'm just sensitive to the time here. Trauma is pain. Trauma is the norm. Gabor Mate says this, and I totally believe it. Like, we are desensitized to trauma. Everybody experiences trauma. Sometimes big, big T trauma, I'm calling it today. Um, sometimes smaller. Um, when I thought I made my father angry, that was traumatic for me. My father was very angry. I thought I made him angry. I was six or eight. When I was trying to fit in with the boys and we moved from one place to another and I was eight and we were playing Vikings and all the guys were not scared, I was eight maybe or seven, I was terrified. I was pretending I was not scared so I could fit in with the boys. It was a traumatic experience for me. Uh, to be rejected, uh, being bullied in grade four and six was hard, hard, and we see that a lot uh, everywhere. Uh, and as Gabor identifies so well, it's, it's everywhere. Trauma is a wound. Is a wound, the more sensitive you are, the more pain you feel. To survive, we disconnect from our pain. And later, that disconnection adds to the pain. So, again, about trauma. And I guess we're emphasizing this, I'm emphasizing this today, just to bring people's attention to it. It's everywhere. Trauma is inherently a violation or an experience of violence. It's all about perceptions. <coughs> trauma is a wound that injures us emotionally. When a person's sense of well-being and survival is threatened. You see this at school all the time. We were talking earlier about how kind one of your daughter's friends were showing her how to use the little bicycle thing. Children are also not kind in the schoolyard, in extreme. And that can be traumatic for our children. Any experience of trauma can leave a person more vulnerable to experience a subsequent stressor as traumatic. When we treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorder, we see that the trauma wasn't necessarily from the first responder activities or the traumatic experience in a theater of conflict or war. We also see that it started in the family of origin. Their sensitivity began early with early traumatic experiences and then progressed as they became more sensitive to those types of threatening situations. Uh, the Jelnik curve, which is an important piece, it just starts with occasional relief drinking, the bigger context. Many people use occasional relief drinking. Using alcohol in our society is very valuable. We value the ability to use alcohol in our society and other substances. Sometimes constant relief drinking commences. People drink to relieve themselves from the stresses of the day-to-day -day activities. And then it can become increased dependence on substances, different substances, or a process. Maybe an urgency, then feelings of guilt. And it progresses 
less interest in other things. Uh, I want to emphasize that substance use disorder and addiction is a progressive illness. It starts small and it's relentless and it never stops. <laughs> if somebody's got this, it doesn't get better until, it, until you arrest the disease. And so, yeah, the Jelnik curve is something that's very interesting for those of us dealing with helping others. Uh, attitudes of family and friends wanting to help. So I'm moving to closure here kind of quickly. Three possible responses from family members. I get it. Your addiction is you dealing with pain. I need to step back to protect myself. In my case, I remember when my wife, my partner, Catherine, you know, and as I say this, I want to draw the attention to the fact, your attention to the fact that I am feeling this. You may see that I'm emoting. I, I'm, I like to emote freely now that I'm a little more healthy. Uh, it was some 30 years ago, and Catherine came home after an Al-Anon meeting, um, a 12-step recovery group for family members, and she said, I love you, go away. And that contradiction that I knew both were true. I knew we loved each other, and I knew I had to go away. I was, there was so much chaos and turmoil. And I get it. Your addiction is you're dealing with pain. I need to step back. I get it. You are dealing with pain. Haven't resolved it yet. I'll help you if you can. I'm not going to try and change you. I deal with family members who try very hard to walk with their addicted people as they get sicker and sicker. And the third option, that this, this is from Gabor Mate, uh, simplification. I can't accept the way you are. It's too painful for me to be with you. I'm going to try and change you. And most of the families that are affected with the dysfunction because of the family rules and survival stances get caught in this place trying to change their loved one, which doesn't work. It's what we call codependence. And yeah, very interesting to, uh, to look at, uh, I believe. Any thoughts or questions or comments? I'm moving through this quite quickly. Probably a few, but you know, and, and at the same time, in the last 20 years maybe, yeah, 30 years actually, uh, harm reduction has been a method of, to deal with substance use disorder. Because when people become addicted, it progresses. And the harm, the collateral harm to their systems and other people can be managed by reducing the harm. So, for example, I, in Vancouver, when I started working in Vancouver, I would see all these windows that were smashed downtown. And it's because everybody with addiction on the street would smash car windows to take the change out of the, the, the coffee holders or, or the CDs or something, you know. And so people would, would manage the risk. And so you now have uh, safe injection sites to manage people's health. You have... Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of harm reduction. And the treatment of addiction and mental health is on a continuum. And it starts with minimizing the harm. So I can see elements of that when he's saying, you don't have to steal for your alcohol or you don't have to fight for it on the corner. Live with me. Do a few chores. I'll manage the harm. I'll buy you the beer. You do a few chores. And, yeah. and so there's some harm reduction there. 
it's valid. The end of the continuum of treatment is abstinence. And when people can maintain abstinence, they put the disease in remission. And so then you can get a new start. But sometimes people die before they get abstinence. So harm reduction has a place. And I'm sure there are thoughts of that. But I'm suspicious always when families are trying to do it because families are trying to change people. And as much as I'm trying to take responsibility for this person's illness, in the addicted personality, the more they don't take responsibility. It's really insidious. It's such an insidious disease, and I could talk about that for a long time, but as I try to help someone, if they're not motivated and I have the primary motivation, they abdicate their responsibility. They keep getting sicker, and I keep getting sicker trying harder. So when my wife, for example, which I think is a great example, said, I can't help you, you need to step away, the impact, the collateral on the family is too much, go away, I love you, good luck with it, I got sicker, and then finally took responsibility, stopped blaming others around me, and but which is at a dangerous point. You get to a juxtaposition, a crisis point. Um, yeah, so I don't know if I'm explaining this, but uh, this idea of enabling or supporting someone in recovery can be elusive. So if you see somebody that has a problem, and it's, it's very valuable to get outside help, I believe. Uh, a little bit about change which is a change model, which I don't know that it's all that important or practical at this juncture, but using substances or processes becomes a way of living. And until something like an intervention point or what Satir called a uh, foreign element is dropped into the mix, in my case it was Al-Anon and my partner going to Al-Anon, then we're thrown into a chaos stage. When things change, you gotta break them all down before they change. There's always chaos in, um, before something emerges out of change. And then for people we work with in the treatment of mental health and addictions, there comes a point when they make a choice to take help and to do what's ever necessary to put the disease in remission. People that have substance use disorders resist help because they're in survival mode. At a physical, emotional, psychological level, they know things aren't going well. And so the organism, biologically, we try harder. And I use the metaphor of somebody drowning in the water. I used to do some emergency response stuff and you can't tell somebody to stop fighting in the water when they're trying to keep their head above water and they're taking water on board. You can't. It's the same with addiction when people get sick. So when the pain gets great enough and the chaos gets great enough, sometimes they let go of control. And as they let go of control, there's a moment that you can give them some help, have them see a new way of being. But often our people return to the self-reliance coping stances that we've all learnt in our family of origin. Uh, Self-reliance uh, and the disease, of course, 
That's why the disease is so insidious. The disease then again continues to progress. So the solution, let's talk about the solution. Connection, establish and maintain abstinence is ultimately the goal. Connection with other like-minded people, increasing knowledge of the disease and the process of recovery. Uh, it's a complex malady. Uh, acquire and utilize the necessary skills to maintain long-term emotional sobriety and live life free of substance and process. When people stop using substances or processes to cope, then they need to catch up and learn the skills, emotionally, psychologically speaking, to manage their stress differently. And so that's kind of like what solution is all about. And solution is uh, very available and it comes in different forms. And there are many people living in the solution, many people living in the solution. But addiction remains the, definitely the number one uh, killer in North America. And so as we get healthier in recovery, we start to balance off. And instead of surviving in a way that diminishes some part of our relational, our relations in the world, self, other, or context, we find a more balanced harmony. And so we become more genuine, more congruent, more emotionally fluent, and start attending to self, other, and the context in a more balanced way. Which is what recovery is about. And dun 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 dun. Oh, spirituality. Spirituality. In this context, spirituality from the word in English comes from the Latin word spiritus, which means the essence or the breath of something. So many people think recovery is oriented to religion. It can be, often, sometimes is, but it's about a spiritual solution. And the spiritual solution is connecting with one spirit one's breath, one's essence. It's about connecting with the spirit of relationship with others. Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, integrity, personal responsibility. It's about con uh, connecting with the essence of the group work or our family work, which is love, you know, love and mutual support. So that's just a note about spirituality in the context of addiction. And so any questions as we move to close? A little over time. That's a lot. Yeah. Too much material, I'm no, sure. Okay. A final word I might just throw out there is because of the social stigma and the nasty nature of the illness, Many people spend too much time in isolation not getting help for this thing. And you know, which is ironic as I look at it from a treatment perspective because it's so pervasive. Everywhere we look, you, you see it in the schoolyard at lunchtime or at recess time. You see it, you drive by it all day long if you're on the street. And uh, you know, it's in our families. Everybody you know, has an uncle or an aunt or a loved one who has uh, suffered with the malady. Um, yeah, so I just encourage people, uh, encourage all sorts of people to just start talking about it. Let's, you know, bring it out to the light and the air so that we can help each other.
the primary symptoms of the disease as they start to emerge are delusion and denial, however, because there's such a return on the stress relief, I feel, maybe using in junior high or high school, that, and part of the disease is this delusion and denial is, I don't want to see it. And so that's problematic. So yes, education, but I think more so, so other people could maybe say, I think I see your drinking is becoming a problem. They go, oh, what do you mean? You see, Because it's hard to see when we're in it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Definitely valuable education and raising the discussion, taking it out of the closet. It's a behavior that's meeting a yearning. We all have a yearning for connection and safety. And the psychoactive substance, alcohol, for example, gives me that feeling of confidence and assuredness and, and relaxation and safety. So there are yearnings inside that aren't met that then are met by these other substances or processes. Yeah, and the behavior, like I say, alcohol is nothing, well, I don't, I haven't said it here yet, but alcohol is a powerful medicine. It's a great thing. A lot of people use it well and uh, for relaxation and for socialization. It's an astringent. You can put it on a wound and it kills the bugs. It's an analgesic. It takes the pain away from the soft tissue injury. It's great medicine and we ingest it and it makes us feel better. But to become dependent upon it, to cope, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah, and the dependency is where you start to cross the line. And then if you have the right social context, the right gene sequence that would make you susceptible, and the psychological personality traits in the extreme, like sensitivity, it progresses in about 20% of the population to become a problem. You know, as I look back at my life, and I said this to patients sometimes, you know, I think I was a seeker all my life. From the time I was a child, I wanted, you know, both the spirit and the essence of relationships and, and higher power. I was always interested in that. And, and I remember my father-in-law subsequently said to me and my wife one time, Catherine, uh, I knew you were going to have a problem when you came home from work and you said it was a three or four beer day. Like you had a stressful day and you were going to have a few beers. And, and my father-in-law, who was a wonderful man, uh, uh, noted these little signs, which I didn't know because I was very much into protecting that uh, because it worked. It was such a valuable resource. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it definitely takes on a life of its own. Yeah, so I encourage people to talk about it. Let's take it out of the closet. I'm in recovery, for example. Uh, we do a lot of people in recovery. Uh, many of us in recovery do a lot of service work. We reach out to others that are suffering, uh, uh, people in 12-step programs. Uh, like Al-Anon is for family members. And if you go to Al-Anon meetings, you'll meet other family members that are dealing with addiction in their family head-on. Wide open so, uh, support groups, mutual support groups. And uh, 
And I go to another 12-step fellowship. There are Buddhist recovery fellowships, uh, Recovery Dharma. I'm familiar with that organization. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. But I do like to make fun of Al-Anon, which is the family programs. And so how many Al-Anons does it take to screw a light bulb? Doesn't take any. They lovingly detach and let the light bulb screw itself. (laughs) And... uh, and it is good, because then, in my case, I was able to accept responsibility for my recovery. Well, education in different ways is definitely the solution. I think there's still, I know, there's still huge judgment and shame associated with this disease. You know, if my daughter had a progressive terminal disease and was not pursuing treatment, I wouldn't have her over for dinner and pretend it was okay. Yeah. It's, we, we turn a blind eye to this thing as it's emerging in our families often until it's too late. Uh, I don't want to blame families, but, but uh, yeah. So I, I think there is an urgent need I think it continues to grow as a huge social issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah. And to talk about it and to have a recovery energy to balance that off. When individual family members pursue recovery from the disease, because we've family members are all impacted, that positive recovery energy affects everything mm-hmm. in the family system. Because as you know, a system like you were doing the work with us here in our system, you know, one little slight movement can affect the whole rest of the system. And so as some people start to pursue recovery, uh, it positively affects the system. Uh, so many of us are very much about being out about our recovery and about talking about this, this horrible thing because it's not a moral issue. It's not a willpower thing. It's a, it's a disease. In our satir work, the therapy, the type of therapy, satir, family system stuff, but we talk about a lot about icebergs and the iceberg metaphor. But deep down inside of me, we all have these yearnings, a yearning for safety, a yearning for love, a yearning for connection, to be seen, to be acknowledged, to have purpose and meaning. And so that's, that's what we really need. And, you know, I the other day... It, you know, and it has to do with my recovery, actually, if I may use myself again as an example, because I put energy into my recovery. Some of the days, or most of the days of my week now, are dominated with feelings of gratitude and joy and love. Like, I really love my family. I love my, a lot about my work. I love my, I love the gym. I love meeting you guys and working out here. And I didn't have that before. And I used substance, which was kind of an artificial way for many years to feel okay. But now that I'm not using that, I'm cultivating the capacity myself to really appreciate a walk in the woods in the morning and springtime. Mm. And the attention that you're giving me right now, which I feel blessed to experience.